The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. So Jesus was once speaking out in the open, up on a hillside, and uh, he had a crowd that gathered around him, probably more than this. And he said to them, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that by your Spirit, Holy Spirit, come and open up this passage to us. Reveal our hearts. Show us even our sin, our filthiness. And show us, Lord, your gracious compassion and your love. May we see our Heavenly Father and his goodness in this text. We thank you for Jesus, who's the only one who's kept this perfectly. We thank you that our righteousness is found in him. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. See if I can move this up a little bit. Aha. I want to try to answer four questions this morning. Hopefully I'm answering them from the text. But the questions are what, where, how, and who. What is Jesus saying here? Where, um, where, where are we looking for rewards? How do we understand rewards? And who is God? They're all in this text. Hopefully you'll see that. But first of all, what is Jesus saying? What is he saying to us this morning? Notice, first of all, three times in this text, Jesus is holding up for us three disciplines, and they are assumed. There's no if here in the text. It doesn't say if you give, if you pray, and if you fast. The specific coordinating conjunction in the original language is when or as often as. It is assumed that you will give, you will pray, and you will fast in these disciplines. So the question is, whose audience are you doing them for? Who do you want to hear? Who do you want to see these things? So the first thing is, it's not an if, it's a when. Jesus assumes that we will be doing these things. So this isn't a sermon so much this morning about the disciplines here of giving, praying, and fasting. 
He's driving really at the heart motivation, why are you doing these disciplines? Although he does take an excursion and he explains prayer, and that will be next week's message is on the Lord's Prayer. But he's asking some questions, a deeper question about the heart in this text. And the repetition in all three disciplines is the same point is made. If you do it for the audience of man, you have your reward. You have your reward from men. And if it's done in secret, though, for God, God sees in secret and God rewards. That's really the simplicity of the text. The Pharisees, though, were hypocrites, and they're called, this is the first time the word is introduced to us in the New Testament, of which we're going to become more familiar with it as we go through the Gospel of Matthew. But the word hypocrite is the idea they're players, they're actors, they're pretenders. It's all for show. When the Pharisee wants to give a gift, he hires musicians, a trumpeter, before giving the gift. The man is not helping the poor not nearly as much as he's using the poor to help himself. You see, God says paid in full to those whose audience is man and not God. Today, we don't blow a trumpet. We get out our phones. We post it on social media. We get out our cameras rolling or we have a press conference. We do that a lot. I was part of something like that recently. A car dealership called me to give a a gift to somebody, and they wanted me to help them find the person. And my regret is that I pulled out my stupid phone and posted it on social media. We got our rewards, but they weren't from the Lord. We do that a lot. We get our rewards from men, and they're shallow and they're barren. And that's what the Pharisees have to offer, nothing. And so the hypocrites that Jesus refers to here, they're really about helping themselves. And their, their, their righteousness is outward. Their audience is men. And so they're trying to attract a crowd. And so Jesus is saying, keep it between you and God. The secret of a reward, what's the secret of a reward? Is that it's done in secret. That's it. The scribes and Pharisees, Jesus pointed out, do everything with their aim of being noticed by others. They enlarge the religious symbols on their clothing. They have to have the most prominent seats at dinners and then the synagogues. They relish loud, respectful greetings in malls and public places, and they have certain names in front of them, like professors or doctor. And, and Dallas Willard, in his great book, The Divine Conspiracy, says this, He says, the hunger for titles and public awards in human life, indeed in religious life, is quite astonishing. The bragging and exhibitionism that goes around the rear end of automobiles, the almost routine puffing of credentials and resumes and much that passes for normal as part of our self-esteem culture. Last week it was the cancel culture. Well, this week it's the self-esteem culture. They're part of a life, he says, with no, no sense of our standing in the presence of God. And yet, this is what makes the world go round, isn't it? I mean, fundraising campaign marketers and managers, they're fully aware of the self-esteem culture, and they play into it. If you give, we'll we'll put your name on this brick for this building. And if you give a lot, we'll, we'll put like four or five bricks. And if you give a whole lot, we'll name a whole wall. And if you give the whole thing, we'll just name the whole building after you. What are you paying for? 
you're paying to magnify your name in a lot of that. What would Jesus think of that kind of campaigning? I don't think he would be real high on it. Willard says, God does not like to be present where he's not wanted. And he knows where he's wanted and when he's not. When people are really seeking a response from someone else, God doesn't intrude, generally speaking. So when our aim is to impress human beings with how devout we are, he just lets, it, lets us do it and stands aside. And as a result, our... There goes a closing song, I guess. As a result, our ego is bloated and our souls shrivel. And this is what Willard refers to as the barren righteousness of the Pharisees. And so, if you're wondering, well, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, we are told to let your light shine before men. Do your good deeds so they would praise your Father in heaven. So how do you recognize, how do you reconcile doing your good deeds so that others will praise God, and here you're doing good deeds so that people will praise you? How do you reconcile this? Well, A.B. Bruce, who's a commentator, he sums it up with a pity quote, with a pithy quote, and I'll just leave it for you to go home and think about for the rest of the day. This is what he says. We are to show when tempted to hide and hide when tempted to show. Just go home and think about that for the rest of the day. How do you know the difference of reconciling, letting your light shine before men and doing your deeds before others? Well, when you're, we're to show when tempted to hide, meaning share the gospel, tell, talk about God, but, when you're, but hide when tempted to show when you're tempted to boast about yourself. You see, the Bible does record names like Cornelius and Dorcas or Tabitha. They're specifically remembered for what? We are told they're full of good deeds and acts of charity. Cornelius was a devout man who feared God with all his household, giving alms generously to the people, praying continually. They were known for their charity. So the issue is motivation. It's not that people will find out. That's not so much the problem, it's the question of why are they finding out? Were they the intended audience all along? Who was the intended audience? Scott Sauls in his latest book where he talks about um, uh, a gentle answer, he says this, if I can find it. My goodness, the first time I'm preaching with a uh, iPad and I've hit a button and man, everything, here we go. Gentle answer, he says, the Pharisees, he says, religion was their costume, people were their audience, and God was their stagehand and supporting actor. You see, for the Pharisees, it was all about about window dressing. It's like a border town of North Korea. It looks really good from the other side of the border, and you're looking over and thinking, man, that looks really nice over there, till you cross over, and you never come back. You see, uh, man, did it again with this thing. I'm going to have to have a tutorial from uh, Mr. Sinney or my daughters how to use this thing. <laughs> I poured water on my tablet last week, and uh, it didn't survive. So this is my maiden voyage on a used uh, iPad. All right, here we go. When Jesus says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, why would he say that? John's thought says this about this. I think this is helpful. He says, not only are we not to tell other people about our Christian giving, there's a sense in which we're not even to tell ourselves. We're not to be self-conscious conscious in our giving, for our self-consciousness will readily deteriorate into self-righteousness. 
So don't keep track of, of these things. You know, making mental notes of all the good things that you've done and then drop hints so people will catch up with that. He's saying don't even keep track. Don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Here's the principle of reward. When you do good deeds so that somebody will notice them, God will take no notice of them. But when you do good deeds and you make note of them, still God will take no note of them. But when you do good deeds but don't keep track of them, God does the accounting for you. Let God be the accountant and he will keep track and he will reward you. So the question is for us this morning is where are you looking for rewards? Where do you get your kudos in life, your applause, your accolades, your congrats? And sometimes it's very easy to, or not so easy to see how much we do it for ourselves or for other people. I recently had a, a bike ride where I, I had this great ride and I thought I had really done well and couldn't wait to check my Strava and to see how I did. And I realized I had never even started it when I started the ride. And so here I'd ridden as hard as I could and, you know, picked a few spots where I would try to set a record for my all-time high. And it's not even recorded. And I had this feeling of, well, why were you doing this to begin with? Just to get the Strava mark or is it for exercise? Or is it really about self? Well, who's the VIP in your life? Really? Who's the very important person? Is it Jesus? Is it your neighbors? Those you're serving? Or is the VIP yourself? Spurgeon has this great story that he tells about the farmer who loved his king. I've shared this before. And one day he, he grew a huge carrot. And he brought it to the king. And he tells the king, this is the greatest thing I've ever produced or ever will produce. I'd like to give it to you as a token of my esteem. And as he walked away, the king said, wait, what delight and joy you've just given me. I would like to give you a double portion of your land. I'm going to double your land and you'll have twice the farm as you had before. The man went home rejoicing. Well, the nobleman overheard it, and the nobleman thought to himself, hmm. he raised horses. He said, well, if the king will give that kind of land for a carrot, what would he give if I brought a horse? And so the nobleman comes, and he brings a horse, and he says, this is the best horse I've ever produced. Please receive it as a token of my esteem. And the king looked at him and discerned his heart and said, thank you, and didn't give him anything. And the nobleman said, what? This is a lot better than a carrot. And the king said, oh, no. The farmer gave me the carrot because he loved me. But you gave yourself the horse. I got nothing. Do you see? The farmer gave strictly out of love. He didn't give in order to get something that he really wanted more in return. The king was loved by the farmer, but not at all by the nobleman. The nobleman just wanted a reward from the king and not a gift for the king himself. So we have to ask ourselves, why am I doing this good deed? Is it for leverage? Is it for leverage with God to get goodies in return or for God to notice so that somehow we think we can appease him? And if so, the Bible refers to this as adultery. In James 4, he refers to adulterous prayers. And what he's getting at is when God is useful rather than being loved, God is being used. And God doesn't like to be used. He likes to be loved. And so how do you know if you're playing the hypocrite or using God to accomplish your will? Well, how do you respond to praise and to criticism? 
Do you puff up like a helium balloon with praise when others compliment you, but pop like a pin when your balloon gets popped, when you're criticized? If we're as fragile as a balloon and easily moved by the wind, we'll make lots of noise when we pop with anger, when we're criticized. You see, that's a little test. Children, you remember, remember Templeton the Rat in Charlotte's Web? Hopefully the children have read that story, but Templeton always wanted to know one thing. What's in it for me? You see, when was food coming his way? And in light of that, I just wonder, is it any wonder that God says to us that our righteous acts are filthy, bloodstained rags? Why would he say that in Isaiah 64, 6? Because we're a rat if there's nothing in it but us, or that we are the intended audience. And if nobody notices, will we still do it? And if we didn't do it, then what does it say about us? John Piper says, the most sanctified people among us must do battle every day so as to not be enslaved by the universal tendency to always act for the greatest earthly payoff. Let me repeat that quote. The most sanctified people among us must do battle every day so as to not be enslaved by the universal tendency to always act for the greatest earthly payoff. So how should I rightly understand rewards? Well, first, we need to see it's a very biblical idea. Let me just remind you of a few verses. Rejoice and be glad when others revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of vile things against you. Rejoice and be glad for what? Your reward is great in heaven. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unfaithful and the evil. Don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Without faith, it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Jesus said, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you'll be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. In the parable of the talents, a long time after the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them, those who received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made five talents more. His master said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two talents more, and his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And the Bible tells us in the very last chapter of the Bible, three times that Jesus is coming again soon, and that he's bringing his recompense with him. He will bring 
retribution, but he will also bring rewards. And what does recompense mean? It's just long, it's a long word, or the longer word would be to recompensate. He's going to recompensate. He won't forget the good that you've done. He will reward you. William Hendrickson has this great quote in the book, The Bible and the Life Hereafter, about rewards, and he says this, But surely in heaven we shall all be equal, says someone. I answer yes, in the sense that all who enter there will will have been sinners who were then in, in the state of having been saved by grace. All, moreover, will owe their salvation equally to the sovereign love of God, and the goal for all will be the same, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Nevertheless, there will be inequalities, differences, degrees of reward, and in hell, degrees of woe, right? For those who for pretense make long prayers and devour widows' houses, these shall receive what? Greater condemnation. When Jesus comes to reward his servants, one of the faithful ones will in the end have ten talents and other four talents. Those, there, there will be those in this life hereafter who will receive a reward which others, though saved, will not receive, and that is not an equal measure. Are there not differences among the angels? Is every angel an archangel? You see, God will reward his people, and yet all will be content all will be fully satisfied to the measure that they can be satisfied. And some he gives more capacity than others. Lewis is helpful, C.S. Lewis, in his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory on Rewards. Probably his most famous quote that you're familiar with comes when talking about rewards. And he says, If we consider the unblemishing promises of reward, and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we're far too easily pleased. We must not be troubled by unbelievers when they say that this promise of reward makes the Christian life a mercenary affair. There are different kinds of reward. There is the reward which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it and is quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those things. Money is not the natural reward of love. That is why we call a man mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage is the proper reward for a real lover, and he's not mercenary for desiring it. The proper rewards are not simply tacked onto the activity for which they are given. They are the activity itself. And consummation. And Paul says to us in Colossians 3, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. And lastly, who is God? This is profound what's happening here in the Sermon on the Mount, because Jesus is telling us all about the Father. And you, you may miss that if you're, you know, maybe reading each little pericope and missing that this is what we're seeing here. If you have a, a, a search engine and you just type in the word Father, and all of a sudden in Matthew 6, it's just Father, 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 Father. And God is hardly ever called Father in the Old Testament. You rarely can find it. And now Jesus comes, and what he's showing us is the heart of the Father. Who is your Father? 
Well, he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. That's the end of chapter 5. And we're told that our Heavenly Father is perfect. And part of his perfection is the way he loves his enemies. He loves evil people. He's kind to the ungrateful and evil. He brought the sun out today and the rain, and he gives it indiscriminately. So you that want to be perfect, not just for the people that, that you like, we're to love everybody, and we're to love our, our enemies. And so the way that we do this is part of the perfection of our Father, and if we want to be perfect, is to love these difficult people that God brings into our lives and love them the way Jesus says that we're to love them. Because this is how God treats humanity in his common grace, giving these blessings on the righteous and the unrighteous. Here we're told three times in this text that your father who sees in secret will reward you. He gives better rewards, eternal rewards, heavenly rewards. What else do we see about God? We're told in chapter 6, verse 8, your father knows what you need before you ask him. That's chapter 6, verse 8. And at the end of the chapter, your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. The nations run after these things, the Gentiles, but your Father knows that you need them. So seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things, they'll be added to you. Your Father knows, and he takes care of you. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? In chapter 7, he's a good Father and gives much better gifts than any earthly father. Our father demands that we forgive others who've sinned against us because he's forgiven our sins. You see, the real trouble with the heart of the hypocrite, Sinclair Ferguson says, is that he does not know God as his heavenly father. He's insecure before God and therefore seeks security in what his fellow, in what his fellow man thinks about him. The hypocrite looks for reward and finds security and identity and what others think of him. What kind of reward are you looking for? And your answer will depend on how you think about God this morning. Do you think about God as a harsh taskmaster? If so, you're going to want to bury your talents. And your very work that you do, your work that you do, is very much contingent on your theology. Because if you believe that God is a good father then you will not want to bury your talents because you will want to make them multiply for him. But if you believe that God is miserly, that God is harsh taskmaster, you're going to bury your talents and be lazy and not want to work because you don't think that God is good. J.I. Packer, who went home to be with the Lord last week, I want to close with a couple quotes from him because I think his, one of his best contributions to the church is his chapter on adoption in his book, Knowing God. And he has a couple of wonderful statements. He says this, and Packer's with the Lord now, enjoying these things fully. He says, there's tremendous relief in knowing to me his love is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that none, no discovery can delusion him about me. Is God ever learning anything new about you, about how bad you really are? <laughs> he doesn't. He already knew, and he loves you anyway. He loved us while we were sinners. And Packer says, you can sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. 
If you want to judge how well a man understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and knowing and having God as his father. If this were not the thought that prompts and controls his worships and worship and prayers, his whole outlook of life, it means he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. The question was once posed to Packer of how he would summarize the whole of the New Testament teaching. Here's his answer, one sentence. It's a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. Read Matthew 6 again, or read the Sermon on the Mount, and just read how the Father is being lifted out for us, for Jesus to show us who God is. Everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. And then Packer drives it home with the following questions. Do I as a Christian understand myself? Do I know my, my real identity, my own real destiny? Calling this Christian secret of a Christian life, of a God-honoring life, he says that we should take the following truths and say it over and over to ourselves. First thing in the morning, last thing at night, as you wait for the bus, anytime your mind is free, we're probably not waiting for the bus, right? Now. And ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows it is utterly and completely true. Here are the six things. I'm a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day near. My savior is my brother. And every Christian is my brother and sister too. And so in conclusion, has the penny dropped for you? Do you believe this? Do you believe this morning that you're more loved than Jacob ever loved Rachel? Do you believe God loves you better than that? Do you believe that you're more forgiven than Joseph's brothers were ever forgiven by the true and better Joseph? Do you believe that you're more redeemed than Naomi and Ruth ever were by a true and better Boaz? Do you believe that you're more delivered from the bondage of Egypt of your sins than the true and better Moses has delivered you? Do you believe you're more secure of the promise of the promised land than Joshua ever was given? Do you believe that you're better treated than the cripple Mephibosheth who ate at the king's table? Do you believe your condition was worse than Mephibosheth's and our king is more gracious than David and his table is unfathomably good? Do you believe you're loved and committed to more than Gomer ever was by Hosea? You have a better husband and a better bridegroom. And he didn't say like, Esther, if I perish, I perish. He said things like, today you shall be with me in paradise and it is finished and into your hands I commit my spirit. You couldn't be any more loved and treasured. Why look anywhere else? Let's pray. Oh Lord, you have told us to put away all deceit and all hypocrisy and like newborn infants to long for the pure spiritual milk, milk that we might grow up in our salvation if indeed that we have tasted that the Lord is good I pray that we have tasted and relished, knowing that we are more accepted and loved by the King of glory, and that it would free us from the tyranny and the bondage of the claps and the kudos and the likes and the reposts of man. Lord, forgive us for loving to hear our name called, to hear our name more than yours. Not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name, O oh Lord, be the glory. Amen.